And then I remember going to a Nigerian restaurant and wanting to try these ingredients. And they was curious, why? Why are you, are you, are you South African? They would ask, are you married to a Nigerian person? I'm like, no, I just want to try out the food. And I, I got to try out different ingredients. And I'm like, how is it that I didn't know these ingredients existed in these products? And I said, okay, the business is actually going to focus on bringing about African whole foods into sort of mainstream, into the health um, sector. So we're not just going to talk about quinoa, but we'll talk about fonio, which comes from Benin. We're not going to just talk about balga, they sorghum. There's so many ingredients that we actually have on this continent that people can learn and know and appreciate and can fit them into their plant-based alternatives and plant-based diets and healthy diet and just contribute to overall well-being. But at the same time, making a difference in these communities, bringing that dignity of ingredients of an African community into the mainstream and it becomes celebrated as a product that can actually be featured on that global banquet table. Welcome to the African Optimist Podcast. I am your host, Sanya Gura, and on this show, I unearth the wealth of opportunities that exist across the continent and speak to people who are shaping its future. What does it take to prosper in cash-strapped economies? And how do you overcome the related challenges, which quite frankly, would make most people stay on the couch? Join me as I interview a range of creative, entrepreneurial and insightful people who are finding solutions to some of the most pressing problems we face today. In this week's episode, I had the joy of speaking to Sipamandla Manklele, a co-founder and the commercial director of food company Local Village Africa. The company specializes in African ingredients sourced from South Africa and other key countries further north. Sipamandla not only shares her passion for these wholesome, nutrient-dense foods, but also her unflinching resolve to create and support a network of African agripreneurs. She is busy tackling one of the biggest challenges in the agricultural sector, how to help small-scale farmers gain access to markets and through that access, a chance at a more prosperous life. A lot of R&D has gone into local village Africa, and here Sipamandla generously shares some of that journey and some of the hard-won lessons learned. So, uh, I think I'm going to just start with a very basic question of what does Local Village Africa do? We are a food company, a wholesale food company, with a for-profit and a non-profit company. So, essentially what we do as a business is to work with communities, sourcing various food products, uh, ingredients rather, and creating food products for your health-conscious customer. So from your grains to your gluten-free flours to your raw honey, to name a few. What is that range that you produce? What range of products do you have? So, for example, we've got snack bars and our snack bars are made with amaranth and moringa and other ingredients. But I mentioned those because those are nice African indigenous um, produce. Another bar is made with baobab um, and local fruits. And we've got canned foods, so canned legumes that are indigenous to the continent and grain like your sorghum in a can. So that it's easy for you to make a salad or your black eye bean or bambara. Some people would call it tituo, dinawa in I think various languages, or nyimo if you're mm-hmm. from Zimbabwe. But it's just jugo bean, some would call it. So that's really like focus on value adding and creating ingredients and recipes for those products that are indigenous. You rattle off these names because they're very familiar to you, but I had to actually Google some of them because they weren't familiar to me. 
Just go into a bit of detail about these ingredients that you have sourced and what they are and why are they indigenous and what are they considered to be good for? So these are products that are ingredients that are originally or indigenously African. So, for example, there are things that grow in Asia or there are things that grow in South America. Like quinoa, for example, that's not an African product. Soy or maize, that's maize is Mexican. But we've got products that are actually grown that are originally African, like your black-eyed bean, your bambara, your sorghum. Those are ingredients that our great-grandparents used to eat, and that's what the diet made up of. So using these ingredients or bringing those ingredients into the light and saying, these are products that we actually have on this continent that are whole foods, that are plant-based, that are healthy, inverted commas, superfoods. Basically, they're just healthy, they're nutrient-dense, and these are good ingredients that we do have. So really, that's what we focus on as products. And are these ingredients grown in rural communities across Africa, or even in rural communities, have they become less over time? If you're in Zimbabwe, Malawi, or Nigeria, these two don't seem as indigenous because Oppa, you know, if you're Nigerian, you're used to that. Do you have cassava, you have sorghum as just part of the staple. In South Africa, you see them mostly just Heritage Day because diet has been influenced and the way we purchase. So we go into a shop and we buy products from there. And so it means we don't get to decide what goes into the shop, right? It's curated, it's convenient, and it's also price point. And more people are growing certain ingredients like maize, for example. A lot of people are growing maize and a lot of people have added value on maize. So it's made it convenient and it has become a staple and a diet that most um, majority of South Africans can relate to now. But those are not ingredients that people's parents grew up on. People would say, oh, but this is what my granny used to give us. So you can already see that it's already lost. But in a West African, East African family, Tef, for example, in Ethiopia, I mean, the baby would be eating injera today. So it's not something that they will only eat on Heritage Day, but it's a daily staple. So we've sort of lost it in South Africa from my understanding, your biggest contribution is that you are sourcing ingredients that only come from Africa. Is that a correct understanding? It is. For example, our honey, we work with communities in different rural communities, training them in beekeeping, buying this honey back, and it's mainly South African honey that we have. Mm -hmm. And then other ingredients are indigenous legumes and grains that are just coming from the continent. So for example, we work with communities in Benin, we work with communities in Nigeria and in South Africa. And that's where we source these inputs. In Benin, the grain that grows there is not a grain that's found in South Africa, but it's still very much African. So that becomes a focus point in terms of ingredients that we actually bring into our product line. What made you decide not to only focus on sourcing from South Africa, but to make it an African-wide focus? It's two things. There's mm. this part that's, I suppose, one can say political. Mm. I think that there's just so much shared commonality within the continent. I think we've always focused on what is different, but I realize with food, there's so many similarities you find if you just open up yourself to see people's diet and what they grew up eating. Take, for example, Bambara, which is one of my favorite legumes. Bambara, the name comes from Mali, near Timbuktu, a place called Bambara tribe. And that's where that legume comes from. But you would ask somebody from Zimbabwe what that legume is. They'll say it's Nimo, it comes from Zimbabwe. If you ask somebody from uh, Limpopo what they think, they'll say Titluo, um, and it comes from Limpopo. And in Zimbabwe, in the, in the Matebele land, they'll say it's Zinzubu because that's what they resonate. And in Nigeria, they call it Okpa. But it's the same legume. And I realized just how similar diet is 
and how similar these ingredients are for us, or rather it's the same ingredient, but how that can combine Africans rather than looking at what is different. So that's one. But the other thing is, is that there's so much opportunity to bring what we have on this continent into the global banquet table. I think that representation from a food point of view is just not sufficient. And I'm not talking about Bap and Fleece, which probably has its role as well. <laughs> but I'm talking about wholesome ingredients that are just found on this continent and mainly in rural communities that can actually make a, a contribution in the global banquet table and influence how the food is consumed and different cultures. That's really why we focus on sourcing on this continent widely, not just South Africa. And tell me, I love this concept of a global banquet table. Why do you think, though, that African traditional indigenous foods have been missing for so long from the global banquet table? I think it's representation and funding and resourcing. I always find it fascinating how the Japanese government, um, I've heard a story, I haven't read it myself, but how they promoted sushi and how that has become a thing. I mean, people who've not gone to school can tell you about sushi who've not been to Japan or Asia, they know sushi. Um, but it's quite interesting that here in South Africa, people who are South African and live in Johannesburg don't know, some people don't know what Nimo is or Zinzubu, which is from KwaZulu-Natal, although a person might have origin from KwaZulu-Natal. So there's not a lot of work that has been done in funding to support that. And just the influence from popular culture, but also from policy and government, because when government can put funding in that, it promotes and it becomes a norm. This is what we eat from a culture point of view. It's almost, there's a perception, specifically in South Africa, I'd say, of, oh, these are foods that were eaten when people were poor. Mm. That this is not mm. food that you, when you now are working and you're this mm. professional, you can actually associate with because you've left that, you know, it's for poor people who would eat that. And so I find that it's not popular because of those beliefs, but also just resources are not available to promote them. But I'm seeing it grow now, specifically around West Africa and Ethiopian injera gaining traction because you can go to London, you can go to, but also because people travel, Nigerian people travel and they mm. are so well-traveled and they bring that culture in those cities. So because of that, the influence is sort of gaining traction and similar with Ethiopian food and because people eat their food and people are interested and it tastes good. And, mm. and so that is starting to take up momentum. So I'm seeing a bit of growth, but not where it should be. What are the kinds of traditional indigenous foods that you are promoting or that you are using in your goods that you are producing? So we've got a canned fruit line and in there we've got a canned sorghum. We've got canned black eye bean. We've got canned bambara bean. So those are beautiful protein sources, gluten-free grain, for example, sorghum. And it works so beautifully in salads or your curries for those who like curries and as plant-based alternatives. So we focus on those ingredients, but also we use what we deem inverted commas superfoods. So your baobab, your moringa and your amaranth, those are other inputs that you get in. And then we bring them into our product, for example, in making our snack bars. So we bring about those products. So we don't have a list of saying, okay, this is the only products we'll focus on. But what makes up currently our line is what is indigenous? What has high value? What is healthy? And what could you apply it? Something that can be applied in multiple ways. And sometimes South Africans might not know the products, but people who are from Ethiopia may know it or from Nigeria or from Benin, they may know and be familiar with those ingredients. And so those are the sort of products that we bring about. 
How did you go about deciding to go this route? I mean, I'm sure you didn't just wake up one morning and decide, okay, I want to eat African food. Of course. <laughs> so where did it all begin? So probably just a bit of background. I mm. come from Lusigisigi mm. in the Eastern Cape. And so I mentioned this because it's quite important. If you've traveled and many of your listeners would have been to the Wild Coast, they see the beautiful landscapes and these people and there's good climate, but they see poverty at the same time. And then going to university, studying social sciences, focusing on community development and business. For me, then that added another element, a dynamic, which was quite good. So you looked at the community element and then you also looked at business. And I've always been passionate about business. I mean, since I was in high school, I had my first company in high school, uh, grade 11, registered my first company, but that was for some other industry, toilet paper manufacturing. So, oh, wow. <laughs> That's not what I was expecting. <laughs> so, so loving business, but then, then getting exposed to community development, I realized, hold on, business could actually be an instrument for rural development. And so that was the foundation of what I wanted to do, bringing about that change in my community, like Lusigisigi, and then using business as a tool to bring that change. But community development as a way to see what are the challenges that are faced by my community. And then I love food. I love mm. organic and clean foods. I always have. I think how we grew up, we ate clean food, good ingredients. I mean, my mom, my dumbe was like on our menu when my dumbas were in season or batata, which is sweet potato, but not the one that you see in store without any water, like really, really good ingredients. So all of that background and influence led me to start business. And w when I started working, I worked for 18 months and I knew that I'm going to resign and then start the business. And so I did these Village chickens, we call them. But these are basically egg layers. <laughs> they were just hard. It took longer to cook. Um, they were not these soft broilers. So I found a supplier, started selling that. But, you know, people didn't want to eat that all the time. And then I started introducing beautiful free-range broilers from small-scale farmers. And I started bringing in eggs and some granola. And then moved on to start to bottle honey that I sourced from this beautiful entrepreneur who just really had the heart for community. And she became our supplier. And I started making granola using this honey. At the same time, while that was happening, I started traveling and just being exposed to different cultures. I remember being in Chicago, going into a, a Senegalese restaurant, and I was in shock. How is it this food is not, you know, in the retail stores? Why is it only found in the Senegalese restaurant? While that was happening, I was reading books by Chinamade Adichie Ngozi, and I would read about pepe soup. Like, what is this? Like, these ingredients. And she obviously would write in the context of Nigeria. And then I remember going to a Nigerian restaurant and wanting to try these ingredients. And they was curious, why? Why are you, are you, are you <laughs> South African? They would ask, are you married to a Nigerian person? I'm like, no, I just want to try out the food. And I, I got to try out different ingredients. And I'm like, how is it that I didn't know these mm -hmm. um, ingredients existed and these products? And I said, okay, the business is actually going to focus on bringing about African whole food into the mainstream, into the health sector. So we're not just going to talk about quinoa, but we'll talk about fonio which comes from Benin, we're not going to just talk about um, balga, there's sorghum. There's so many ingredients that we actually have on this continent that people can learn and know and appreciate and can fit them into their plant-based alternatives and plant-based diets and healthy diets and contribute to overall well-being. But at the same time, making a difference in these communities, bringing that dignity of ingredients of an African community into the mainstream and it becomes celebrated as a product that can actually be featured on that global banquet table. Why is it important to rediscover 
these indigenous foods. Sometimes things die a natural death for a reason. If there's no <laughs> demand, then, yep. you know, why, why create a supply? Uh, hmm. Some people could be thinking. Sure, that's a really good question. And I think one of the challenges I've seen in the business as well is you're almost having to educate. You put in a lot of money in terms of marketing and educating. I just think that it's important. Somebody's got to do it. People might demand rice more than sorghum, so be it. But I just think for future generations, from a sustainability, just not too long ago, we talked about Russia and Ukraine, and all of a sudden wheat became a discussion. We don't want to have a problem like that in the near future from a food point of view. Food has to be accessible. And growing food locally, I think that's important. Food that just thrives naturally here. So sorghum as one of those ingredients that can feature. So yes, it tastes great, but it's as important from politics point of view, but also from economy, local economy point of view, it just makes sense. It's a business case, not just from commercial point of view. So it's important. I mean, I look at potato. Potato is one of the products that people don't want to eat. People thought potato was food for peasants. It wasn't European and it was, you know, South America and, you know, no one wanted to, 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 to eat that. But it took will, political will. It took a king, I think it was a French king, if I'm not mistaken, I can be corrected, who started growing it in his garden and he had guards to protect the potato. <laughs> and then people realized, I mean, after efforts and efforts of trying to promote the potato, they would host it in their feasts where they would have it. People wouldn't eat it. They tried different ways to promote it. People didn't want to eat it. Then the king planted it and put guards around. And then people realized if the king is willing to protect this crop, it's worth stealing. So then they start stealing and they started growing <laughs> and it was worth eating. And I mean, today, potato, mm. how it is. I mean, we've got French fries, which mm. is like European, mm. but people thought it was a peasant food. So it's as important to do the work. So probably for future generations, because we understand the importance of a people, uh, a culture. Um, I think that African ingredients have that because if I'm in Europe or somewhere in Frankfurt and we're having a conversation and somebody says, oh no, I'd like a sorghum salad. I mean, that's a, that's a story to say, where does sorghum come from? I can share the story of a people about my granny or her great-grandfather who grew this or ate it and this is how the, it was made and it was consumed. So when you begin to erase food, there is a culture that you begin to take away from a people. I think that's such an important point. I remember there's a whole series called Great Courses and they were looking at food across the whole history from the beginning as far as they can trace it. And I remember when they were covering African food, they almost didn't go into a lot of detail. They spent a lot of time in Europe on the spices and the mm. spice trade across Asia. Mm. And it almost sounded like if I didn't know any better, I would have walked away going, you know, African food is quite tasteless, not mm. flavorful, very few ingredients. Mm. Um, how would you counter that perception of African food? There's just so much. I mean, I think about growing up with pumpkin leaves. I mean, that was our green, hey, before kale was a thing. <laughs> there was some version of kale, I think, but we just, um, I mean, mrojo, your pumpkin leaves with your amaranth and having that with like a, a mixture of this, something called sansa in Zimbabwe. And you just mix that up. We'll call it umga or iskwampa. But it was just that there was no oil. There was no, just a bit of salt. That was nutritious and it was tasty. You get your herbs and you get your clean ingredients. Not lots of spices with MSG. Just really, really super clean. I mean, people would eat up a chicken. You had chicken broth. You don't have to go buy your broth. Then you have madumbe. It's called tora in English. Taro root, they call it. And it's such a beautiful ingredient. It's healthy. Like you felt good after eating that. Just felt clean. 
course, I didn't know then, but now when I eat that food, I, I feel that, oh, this is really good ingredients. But back then, it, it was just, it was just our food. Mm-hmm. There's just so much to try. I try injere. I love injere. And it's basically fermented teff, which is indigenous to Ethiopia. And that has so much flavor. Or you have your uh, melon seeds from Nigeria that mixed it up in a soup. There's just so much food that you can find all over this continent that is delicious. And just after eating that, you feel so well. It's wholesome. It's clean. It's organic. It's just beautiful. So definitely there's good ingredients on this continent. There's multiple, multiple from your tubers to your fresh vegetables to your grains. And uh, there's just too much. So there's lots of food here. How did you decide, though, on which indigenous foods to focus, given that there is so much and Mm. one has to kind of start small, I'm imagining, as an entrepreneur? So how did you decide which foods to actually first invest in or source? Yeah, no, but that's a continuous question that we ask ourselves in our team. Like, okay, what do we let go of? What's not moving? What's moving? What do we focus on? Because there's just so much. But I think one wanted to have legumes. You wanted to have a grain as key because people use these ingredients. And then what we call superfoods, I suppose. That's when people don't know where to categorize them. Everything just fits under superfoods. <laughs> but your baobab and your amaranth and some of those, like your powders that would come from your amaranth leaf, as an example. Wanted to be able to play around with that and bring it in. But the conversation we're currently having in our team is, which products do we let go of? where maybe bigger companies are actually playing in that space and we focus more on value adding where there's probably not a lot of players in that category and then creating those products. So that's the direction we're taking now. For example, there's no company that's canning sorghum. Even when we've been investing in just R&D on that, Black Eyed Bean, yes, it's been canned. Bambara, never been canned before, at least when we did our research and we've worked on it for the past four years, just developing that product because we wanted to have something that's convenient as well. Because convenient becomes a big factor because customers don't have that much time. They want the ingredient, but they say, but I don't have two days to soak this and then cook it for eight hours the next day or whatever it is. So we're trying to make making those ingredients convenient for the customer who's looking for that. That's where the direction is heading. How do we make convenient using African ingredients? I'm intrigued with the early startup phase in businesses like this. Did you spend a lot of time reading about ingredients and indigenous foods and speaking to people? What was the research phase like? Where did you start? So, of course, one had to do some research, but also you're seeing there's a lot of players, not just in South Africa, that have developed products. For example, I remember I came across, there was a lady in Pretoria who was making cookies with sorghum at the same time. And then there was another entrepreneur who was doing jams using these indigenous ingredients. Those were things that you were seeing, okay, what could they become? What could be done? And how do we then focus ours so that we're different from what's already there? But that served as an inspiration to see, okay, but there are people who, you know, testing out a product, putting it through heat, having an output. And then also just mentors, people who are in the food industry, in food science, they've got lots of things to share with us. And they've tried out different ingredients in their big FMCG jobs. They could share to say, but this could work, this wouldn't work. So that played quite a big role as well. And I mean, the learning is continuous, eh? How do you go about thinking about what should be processed and into what? Because it's fine to source something from a farmer, right? To source the ingredient. But Mm. then you're sitting with a raw ingredient that, although you don't want to have a highly processed food, it still has to be processed for consumption. Conserved, preserved, I'm assuming at the very least. Mm. Um, 
Yeah, how do you go about doing that? So, in the beginning, because you don't have capital, the only thing you can do is just take a packet. And that's just because your capital allows you to do that. But the moment you start value adding, now you need a machine, you need something else, or you need somebody who will assist you, who's got, let's say, capability to make snack bars or to do something to assist you with that. You will do your formulation and then give it to them to make for you. So I think sometimes you just don't have an option just to start with commodity. And then you realize from a price point of view, from when you're thinking or from a business point of view, it's like you're selling this at this price. It's too expensive. But sometimes when you process it, it does become cheaper because you can mix it with other ingredients and then the price can come down. Um, so that's really how we decide uh, or rather influences that made us come to, okay, now we value adding because then we had a bit of capital in and then we could create products. But now the next phase is what are products that are actually being consumed? So is it jams? Is it in the condiments? Is it on the spice side? What are customers actually buying on a day-to-day? Is it bread? Is it milk? Okay. So if we are clear, these are the categories that are doing well. How do we participate in that category using these ingredients? And that's still, you know, you need a bit of investment to do that because you need to do research, understand what moves from a retail point of view. And so that's where we currently are as a business is looking at participating in growing categories, but using these ingredients rather than just focusing on these ingredients as a separate category to say we're focusing on African indigenous whole foods and it ends there because then people don't know what to do with them. They're quite overwhelmed. But if we sell you a sorghum in a can, you at least but if no, okay, so it looks like balga, it looks like this. Maybe I could do a salad. Maybe I could do this. I could maybe do a risotto. It becomes easier for you as a customer to make a decision on how to, to enjoy that meal. I think one of the exciting things that I also saw was you speaking about the fact that retail doesn't really incorporate indigenous ingredients into mass-produced products and that there's actually a huge gap that exists and a huge opportunity to really start getting retail on board in terms of using substitute ingredients that are grown locally, probably more nutritious, probably cheaper, and will set off a whole value chain in terms of developing farmers. For sure. I think both FMCG, so the food producers, but also the guys who sell the products, your retail stores. Um, if you go into any sort of main, one of the top four retailers, You'll find a Mexican section and you'll find an Asian section or your spices, but you don't find local section at all. And you don't find it being incorporated or discounts or promotions being held around that. You probably do find it on Heritage Day and that's where it ends. And I I don't think you want to eat a cuisine that's only eaten on Heritage Day. And I don't think African food should just be limited to September. I think that there's so much to try out from January to December. But then from an FMCG point of view, I think that from food science, it's just like chefs, they learn French techniques. And that's how it is from a food science point of view as well. There's a technique. These are the ingredients. This is how you formulate product. You don't see these ingredients being featured. But now I'm seeing it quite a lot of universities now are looking at sorghum, for example, looking at other ingredients that can be incorporated and they can sell that IP to your mainstream FMCG, your food producers. And then they take that product because in South Africa, unfortunately, uh, we have an oligopoly. So from your bank, your insurance, even your food. So it'll be your five big players and they will even go to spaza shops, those five big players. So like there's brands that people just know. And that's the culture we have in this country, right? Not like perhaps in other regions where people are very open to smaller brands or ingredients that they haven't heard of. 
and it's cheaper when you do mainstream mass production with an essay of an ingredient list. You find that people appreciate that more. Mainstream people, I would say. <laughs> they tend to appreciate that more. So if there is that R&D that's taking place from university, it does help the cause a bit because then they, they influence the food science side of things. But at the same time, retailers are influenced in terms of what they actually have on their shelf. Both sectors need to yeah, come on board. You started in 2016, I think. Correct, yeah. So COVID did a lot to localize everything and to push the local agenda. But when you started off, what were the kinds of reactions when you told people about what you were doing? Mm. What are the kind of prejudices that you've had to deal with? How do people respond to your products? When I started, I started doing the free-range chicken. I also had eggs. So where I worked was at Melrose Arch. I had a market I used to set up on a Friday at Melrose, Friday and Saturday. So I had some of my old colleagues pass by. And they felt so sorry for me. I think, oh, but you used to wear suits and stuff. Because I was a graduate. So you're starting out your career. You could get into this sector and grow in this. And then it's almost like you're a fallen soldier, you know? It's like, shame. I remember even at the markets at Rosebank, uh, somebody said, oh, you went to school. Oh, you, oh that's very interesting. And <laughs> That you actually have a store and you're building this up. So you have that, especially when you're in products and you're creating something from ground up. People do appreciate when something is on shelf and it looks pretty and fancy. But when you're really starting up when there's no capital, I think people do feel sorry for you. But also just the nature of South Africa, right? People are not a lot of entrepreneurial. And when I say entrepreneurial in the sense of it could be from somebody selling something on the street and, you know, we don't have that huge culture like East Africa mm. and, and West mm. Africa because everything is in retail so people have corporate jobs mm. and so that's mm. the trend so mm. get a corporate job that's the way people do it mm. I mean I've only done 18 months of corporate job and then the rest I've been in business <laughs> but usually people would do it's safer as well do corporate job and so that was the response but then at the same time starting out with these indigenous ingredients at the market I was fortunate enough to be in markets where people are open-minded customers appreciate things that are different they ask questions, they're quite open. And that's a very small market where people are very discerning and very, very open-minded and they want to give things that are grown locally a shot. So I found that it gave us an advantage, but also it gave us some energy to keep going and realizing, okay, let's service this market that's quite interested in our product and grow it and serve them better by creating more products that they can enjoy. So that's really been the response. I'm picturing you in Rosebank Market. I know it very well. Um, <laughs> And I'm just thinking, what was the vision that sustained you or the mission that sustained you through those times when it was that ach shame, she clearly hasn't made it and she's not succeeding. What is your overarching vision and mission for Local Village and what's kept you going through the tougher mm. times? In terms of where I come from, my background, and this is not just unique. I realized with time with traveling and having friends who tell you that I also grew up in rural communities and it's similar, beautiful landscapes natural resources, but poverty. And so for me, one of the most important things is to continually answer that question, how do I make that better where I come from? How do I make it better for many communities on this continent? And so unfortunately, whether I'm selling eggs there that come from small-scale farmers, if I need to do that to try and solve this problem, then I'm going to keep selling my eggs or now not eggs anymore, but continue selling our indigenous produce, our honey that comes from rural communities that we've trained, that we've developed so that they can become part of our supply chain. So I think that for me is more important than my dignity or my suits that I could wear in corporate, because then they're contributing to something meaningful to this economy, contributing to 
this continent. So I think that for me keeps me going to make about that difference and that drives me. Sipamanda, looking at you, I could picture, I mean, you could have become a farmer and a very big farmer. There are some areas in South Africa you drive through and you just drive for kilometers past these huge lands owned by one farming family. Mm -hmm. And you could have chosen that route. You could have used the same drive to start promoting farming in Eastern Cape, for example, which we know is very challenged in terms of Mm -hmm. water scarcity and resources Mm -hmm. to grow despite the natural abundance. Why why didn't you opt to go that route? Yeah, I know. I was chatting to my business partner, which I didn't have when I started, but lately we was just reminding ourselves in terms of our vision. And I said, you know, I, I don't think I want to have a huge factory where it's just numbers, where it's just, you have a farm that just has one crop throughout where there's no crop rotation. I think because I realized food, although I'm in, in it for commerce, right? We're in it, we're business, we're selling it. We're not just giving out all these products. But I still feel that food is, it's not something that was designed to be commercial. It's such a, such a meaningful thing. We eat food every day. And I don't think I want to just run this huge factory and just produce and put all these preservatives and put all these things just for the sake of it. I think that for me to be sane, I think how I eat, clean as possible, eating from the people I know. I go to these organic health stores and I buy from mostly producers that I know or at least have heard of or a small family that grows And I find that there's just more appreciation because in a huge farm, people just spray whatever. There's no care. There's no appreciation of the end customer who's going to eat this. I mean, I grow my own food in my garden for personal consumption, but we also got a a small farm as a business. In my mind, I think about my guests who are going to eat the ingredients. I think about my family. So even if I spray an organic pest control, I'm going to clean my vegetables. Now, when I go, if it's commercial, most of the time, it's just about reduce the margin, produce as much as you can from as little as space as you can. And that's really, right, it's efficiency. You're trying to feed as many people. But I think if many people did this, we wouldn't have an issue of food, right? If many people did it at small scale for their family, for their communities around, maybe I'm just an idealist when it comes to, when it comes to food. So that's probably why I didn't take that direction of just going all big and just trying to stay as small, as organic and as clean because when you do it at that scale I think you can't control the way it's done at least the output of it. You know a lot of people talk about last mile about getting food from farmers into retail spaces and there's such a huge gap and very few people are brave enough to tackle that gap because it's a very difficult gap. There's a statistic of what 40% of food waste from farm to table and uh Also, the difficulty in small-scale farmers producing consistent quality over time. So for me, I was very excited to read that you're filling this gap between small farmers producing and that what they're producing landing up on someone's table. Is that a very big focus of yours or is that just a side? It is. So it's, it's sort of our vision or probably strategy as a business is our supply chain. So the reason why we set up a nonprofit company was to be able to do that. So we've got our private company that just gets the products onto the shelf, buys from the communities. So the nonprofit becomes a development capability. So through the nonprofit called the Village Co-Market, we do training. Um, we've, co- we've partnered with various corporates who have bigger budget than we do, unfortunately. Fortunately, they are willing to collaborate where we've come to them and said, we'd like to develop beekeepers in a certain community where we'd want to probably, let's say, train 40 beekeepers. 
and we've trained over 190 beekeepers directly. And then those people have indirect beneficiaries and then they become our suppliers. We raise the money, we buy the implements also from part of our revenue as a business. So if we sell a honey jar, a percentage of that goes into the efforts we're doing on our nonprofit and we buy the, the communities, the implements. So your beehives, the bee suits, and we do the training. And then we set them up as a cooperative and they become our suppliers and we sign a contract with them. I, the reason why we do that, it's as important because people feel like, oh, I didn't go to school, but I can be trained to have a profession. I can become a beekeeper. I can have 50 hives or 200 hives and be part of a cooperative. I can have a company and become an entrepreneur myself and a supplier company that is supplying other companies as well. So we find that there's value in that for our supply chain. And that's really, really important to have that as a main focus from a sourcing point of view. I'm just thinking, how easy is it to work with farmers and work with people who are not trained initially? What have been the challenges? So I've got a very gracious business partner. She's awesome. She's a sustainability director of the business and I'm the commercial director. So as I was saying, when it started in 2016, I didn't have a partner. I started the business on my own. She had her own business. And I think late last year, where it was just tough, we decided, look, one can't do this on their own. One is trying to do sustainability and commercial at the same time. And she was also trying to do that at the same time. And we decided to merge our businesses. And we would then focus our energies. I would focus on making sure that we've got products that will go into the retail market, products that customers actually want to buy. She would focus on making sure that our suppliers were equipped and trained and then they can fit well into our value chain. And then we begin to split our efforts so that we just give one department focus and just do well in that so that one doesn't fail. So that's really how we've done it. And she's very gracious in a sense. She's also very, she comes from the rural communities, very passionate about community development. She's done psychology as well. <laughs> that helps. <laughs> and she's worked at a university before. So she then focuses on the training in the communities. There's also quite a lot of dynamics working with communities. I remember when I did at school, you know, you do community development, you learn about top-down approaches and you're thinking you'll just go into a community, we'll just do this, something, we'll work out, but unfortunately it doesn't. There's just so much conflict. There you have to go through tribal councillors, you have to go through local government and the people and you work with the church in some communities to try and actually win over on the project before we actually get to start the work. So that is hard, but yeah, she's gracious and really gifted in that area. So she focuses on that in the business. I think especially in South Africa, there is such a brokenness among communities. What was it even just, what, 70 years ago? Hendrik Favut, he was of wood and drawers of water, I think was the theme of Bantu education. How do you deal with that kind of effect on the mindset of people who think that they can't do anything beyond just live hand to mouth. If you grow up in poverty, it's very difficult to escape, to escape poverty yeah. thinking. Hmm. How does one start to tackle that? So we don't go in there and say, oh guys, we'll give you grants. We don't unfortunately have that approach. We are startup ourselves. We both come from rural communities. So we can say, yeah, but we know we're not from Europe with like some budget from Europe taxpayers that we come in to just distribute. We say we come from these communities. We understand what it is, but you just have to step up. We're going to give you training. This is what will happen. We'll set you up as a cooperative. You will have to do it yourself. So that becomes our approach. I mean, sometimes there are corporates that can maybe give people stipends. I said, mm -hmm. no, it just doesn't help 
a person. There's help that's required, especially where there's immediate need. I mean, there's poverty in this country. Mm. And there are people that are really, really poor where there could be short-term incentives for those people or relief. But I just think that we need to get people out of that and try and train and remind people that there's so much gift that they are gifted with and try bring that about. I don't think it's normal, no natural for a person to think theirs is to just sit and do nothing. Mm -hmm. Even if you decide by choice that you're not going to take up a career, but to go out, do your gardening, that's work, mm -hmm. to do something with your body and with your brain. We're not designed to just sit as people. So working is something that we have to, because that's where you sometimes realize your talents and the capabilities you have by working and doing. There's a project we ran through my business partner where it is people who are visually impaired, older people who, for them, they thought, oh, they're visually impaired, there's nothing. But that community gave them hives. They started painting beehives, making up beehives, so contributing to some of the beekeepers. And one of the old men said to my business partner, I didn't know I could be capable of doing something like this. He focused on what he couldn't do, that he couldn't see, but he has hands, he's other things he can actually do. And by going into that community and showing them, hold on, but you can do something that a person can realize, I'm not just this person who's deemed, oh, I'm visually impaired or I'm just poor or whatever it is that society views me as, but I'm a man or I'm a woman and I have capabilities and I can flourish by being in an environment that enable me to flourish. Uh, how did you go about sourcing farmers in other countries? That couldn't have been an easy thing. First of all, which countries does one choose? What was it first, the ingredients, then the countries, then looking for the suppliers? or how? So it's probably ingredients, but also being part of a community. We are a member of a platform, it used to be called Nourishing Africa. These are farmers across different regions on the continent, so east, west, north. And everybody's a member there. So you get to meet different people. You meet nonprofit organizations who are doing what we're trying to do in their regions. And they've got ingredients that we don't have in South Africa. And so that becomes a platform to actually meet then traveling and being exposed to people and just really being open-minded and going into a culture, appreciating what they do. Now this is from a business point of view. It becomes easier to work with you because then you're not coming here and saying, this is how you should do this. And people don't like to be told what to do <laughs> by outsiders. Nobody. But I think it was the ingredients. So, for example, we wanted to have Fonio, and we don't have Fonio in South Africa. Of course, Benin, we found a supplier who was in Benin. We wanted to have hibiscus, specifically a certain uh, type of hibiscus, and we knew West Africa was the place to go. So that's really how it's been informed. So we use both platforms of meeting suppliers, but also at the same time, looking where the ingredients grow. Well, how have suppliers treated you when you have gone to travel and when you've met them for the first time? Is there um, an openness and a, a sense of, oh, here's a new market opening? Or mm. have you been... Yeah, no, people are excited. I mean, we mm. still do. Of course, we're a small business in a sense. So we're not bringing in containers and containers. Mm. But people like opportunities and people want opportunity because people also understand the trading. You know, if you're in Lagos and in a market, people understand. We're trading, there's a buyer and a seller. So people are not really skeptical. As long as you pay, <laughs> that's the important thing. <laughs> pay me. And then, you know, you get the product. So um, as long as you just prove your credibility in terms of like, I'm actually a paying customer and I will open up a market for your ingredient in a different region and people get excited by that. Tell me, in this whole journey, what have been the biggest challenges for you? What really, you know, what were the low points? So starting a business is hard. Doesn't matter what industry you're in. Food industry has regulation. 
and startup costs are quite high. So I have to have a minimum order that I have to purchase, but I don't have a minimum order for my customers. So I have to buy in, let's say one ton, and I've only got a market for 50 kgs or 100 kgs. So trying to sell that to customers often is very hard when you don't have capital. That tends to be a bit of a complicated thing. When I started, I wanted to have a partner. Unfortunately, it didn't work out. I didn't find anyone who wanted to actually partner. I think people wanted to have their own things. And that really took a knock on me. I just, it's hard. It's hard to work on your own. People love it and it has its benefit, but it's hard. You can't share the load with anyone. You've got employees. People want their salaries. You're thinking it's almost month and how are we going to make uh, pay? You know, there's no one who's just with you there. And so that was one of the most difficult parts until obviously of recent where now we decided to merge our businesses with a friend. And at least now I have a partner. So that's been also quite difficult. But also operating in a market where, as I was saying earlier, it's like top four, top three players. And they've got economies of scale. They've got price point. So automatically you're going to come in, you're already expensive because you don't have economies of scale. You're also operating within a niche market. It's a very small market who's going to buy your product. So it means you're not producing a lot of volume to be able to drive price down. So you perceived, oh, you're just too expensive. Why is Sorghum this price? Or why is this this price? Without the appreciation of, well, our sizes, the sizes as a business. So those are some of the key challenges. But because also one hasn't worked in FMCG, so you've had to fail, you've learned, you've tried out products, they flopped from just from a formulation point of view and then getting them to the market or then getting an opportunity to go into retail, but you have no budget for marketing. You can't go in to do promotion. So now you have to go collect your stock because something has expired or you get an order and you've promised and you, okay, this is the delivery date and their supplier doesn't come through on the date. And now you, you have to then go tell your customer, oh, just, you know, give us more time. And it's an embarrassing thing to not be able to deliver. I think it's just hard, but it's part of it. It's part of building a business. So when you fail, then you take that example, what you've learned, put it in as your risk factor, as in your business processes, and you try to avoid it. But if you don't know, you don't know what you don't know. And you can only know once you do. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's what I found. Earlier, you said consumers, uh, you know, who to sell to. So that was my next question. I was wondering, how do you go out there and convince the world to buy indigenous foods? So yeah. tell me a little bit about that journey. Firstly, because we sell mostly B2B. We've had advocates, like people who own health stores, who are just divine. Mm -hmm. I think as a small business, you want to have your local health shop owner mm -hmm. somewhere because they understand running a small business and what it takes because they've had to come into an industry where there's big main retail stores and they've had to offer a proposition. Mm -hmm. And so when you come to them with something different, they're willing to say, I'll give you shelf mm -hmm. space. You don't have to pay for it. Mm -hmm. They make up a margin on the product. You promote it. They put it up on their social media and give you advertising platform mm -hmm. where big retailers wouldn't give you that. Although it is small because a health store will own one or two branches, but you know the market that will go there. At least there's appreciation that the customer who walks into that health store or an organic store, there's an openness. They know that mm -hmm. probably there's new products on the shelf. There's something different for gut health. There's something different for nutrition or I don't know what it is for, for aging or whatever it is. Um, but we've invested a lot on recipe development. We work with a lot of chefs in creating these recipes. And we've got advocates. There's one chef, Chef Mukhadi, who's just been so instrumental and just advocating and referencing us as a supplier while she's creating different food products. So people like that, where we don't pay them anything, they just love what we do. And I mean, that's just such a blessing for us as a business. 
the chefs that create different products and they give us the recipes, they share the recipes they've created with our products and, you know, continue to educate customers. That has helped our cause. The other thing we've invested in last year, a project called the African Banquet Table. We've done a coffee table book where we talked about the ingredients and we've done a little children's coloring book. So you color in sorghum, you can color bambara, you can color cassava, but it's a way of educating the next generation. The coffee table book serves as a book that you can actually understand these ingredients and what they're used for. And we've distributed that in over 300 schools in nine provinces Mm -hmm. and 6,000 children actually colored and we ran a competition. They won prizes that are local village food products like your snack bars and your honeys and seeds for their school gardens. We've also partnered with a corporate um, to distribute African indigenous seeds from your marula to your baobab trees to preserve these ingredients. So we're distributing them in various community gardens. So that's ways of actually educating the customer and convincing them that, hey, we've got a business case here. We've got good ingredients on this continent. Why don't you give us a try? Have you been focusing on local, as in South African, and African consumers as well as global consumers? Because when you're developing your products, I imagine it's quite difficult to pinpoint what consumer are we really creating this for? So we're looking at two ways. So we've got a, a local customer. Because our reach, where we are right now, we can only reach this customer. Long term, we're looking at an international market. We've been approached by a retailer in the US, but we're still in the process of our FDA getting that, but also we need capital for that and having the right proposition. So that's in the pipeline for that customer. But what is not different about the customer is that it's a conscious person who's looking for something wholesome and good with an impact. So that customer, whether they're in South Africa or in the US or in Germany or in London, it's that one customer that we're out for. Somebody who's looking for a product that makes them feel good about their purchases, that if I buy honey from local village Africa, They know that there was a community that was developed, that there's people who've contributed to this. So it's not just us as entrepreneurs, but there's people that we then also feed back to. So those are the customers we address. It sounds to me that you're not just focusing on profits. What is the framework within which you work? Mm. Or what do you apply in terms of your business model? The typical triple P, so your profit, your planet, people. I think those are the, not in that order though, But I think it's important for any business to be sustainable. We need to have employees that are paid according to market standards. And that's important. And we're going to get that by selling product at a good price or make margin there and we can pay our salaries. But we don't, as a culture, both my business partner and I, we don't have dreams of becoming billionaires. That's not what we think about. And oh yeah, I want to be the next. No, that's not at all in our vocabulary. We want to make a difference for our employees, for ourselves, for our families for the community, for the health of this nation, but also to bring about that transformation. So those are the, I suppose, levers that we keep. Does this solve a problem for our communities? Is there a margin here? Can we actually sell this product? Can it sell? So that's a business question. So we're not focused on just community development and it ends there for us. It doesn't make sense if we don't sell profitably because then if we don't do well in business, we can't give access to market for the suppliers that give us the rural communities. It has to work hand in hand. But at the same time, we we don't want to focus on just the business. Otherwise, we might as well just go to China and just buy products and just package and and, and end of story. We'll take the long route because this is as important for us, but it is as important to make sure that the business runs sustainably for all its stakeholders. You know, young people are so influenced by this. You only are a success if you've made a lot of money, if you Mm -hmm. can drive around in that big car, Mm -hmm. if you have the big house. Mm -hmm. You know, what would your response be to that? 
I think it's important to be able to take care of yourself, but I think there's a lot to go around. I don't think that there's scarcity, there's resources, but you don't have to have it all. Like the money doesn't have to stick with you. It can be shared. People drive in fancy cars. Doesn't matter. They are cross races. And that's just not necessary. I don't think it's necessary. Be comfortable. Of course, I'm not saying people must be poor. Be comfortable. Children must go to good schools, have security. But you don't have to have all the money. You'll die and you'll leave it here. But just make sure that somehow, if you've got somebody working in your home, pay that person fairly so that they can do stuff for their family. If you're at a restaurant and you can tip, tip. There's no harm in that. Don't complain on wanting to pay the most cheapest thing on the person on the road. But you don't mind investing in Germany and with the German cars, right? You don't mind putting in your money there. And so I just think that people need to have healthy relationship with money. Like spend, save, spend, save, but do good. I think to whom much is given, much is required. And I think we've got that attitude to realize that life is not just about you, that your life could be meaningful to so many other people. And that's just beyond monetary value. We don't starve. I don't, I don't starve for sure. <laughs> I eat good ingredients. I'm a bit safe, I suppose, in my home. But I'm like, I'm not rich people in South Africa, like richest people in South Africa or things like that. And, and I'm not unhappy. As long as I can take care of myself and my family, I think that's important. But I just think that money is not all of that. And it, it shouldn't be the greatest driver. When you do stuff and you meet a need for a customer, money will come because somebody will pay for the service if you're in service or if you're in product. Somebody will pay for the product. You just need to cost it right and sell it. And then you pay yourself and pay your team well. And especially in South Africa, because there's just so much of a need. And the more inequality we achieve, we increase or widening that Gini coefficient, they say mm. the economist. And it's just going to be bad because then you're going to have really rich people and then really poor people. And then rich people are going to try to protect themselves from these really poor people with securities. But if you can create an environment where people work and people are working and they're occupied, they can provide for their families. It's just fairer. Of course, there'll be people who are much more rich. I'm not saying I'm not a socialist, mm. but I think that social elements are important. Capitalism has its role, but there will be people who will create industry and they'll be more rich, but they don't have to be that rich and the others who are poor, that poor. So mm. let's try reduce that Gini coefficient and, and get people to be paid. Well, you've given a lot of tips along the way in this interview, but I'm just wondering if there's anything else, any other words of advice or tips that you would want to give young people who've just come out of school, out of university. We know that we suffer from an incredibly high unemployment rate, not yeah. just in South Africa, across Africa. What advice would you give to people starting out going, well, where does opportunity lie for me? I, I just think that, I think people just need to get, get over themselves. Um, it doesn't matter whether you went to UCT, UKZN, or Forte, wherever it is, it doesn't really matter. It's great that you went there. It's an opportunity no one had, but get over it. Because what happens is that a person will say, yeah, but I'm not going to do that job because I went to university. I'm owed this. Somehow I need to be the first. I remember when I wanted a corner office, I thought, oh, I, when I was in high school, I used to dream of carrying a briefcase, wearing a suit, having a corner office, just being this corporate giant, you know? I used to watch TV and I thought that was real life, but I love what I do. So I'm not, I'm not complaining. But sometimes you just have to humble yourself and just take up a job that perhaps doesn't look like a big corporation job or something that you deserve in inverted commas. Sometimes you just look at where the opportunities are 
And when you see where the opportunities are, make use of that, take advantage of that. So just like us, I'm going to sell my eggs because I want to sell free range eggs at the Melrose Arch Market because there's value. That's honest work. And doing what I'm doing, I can then create employment. We are a team of eight people now, but I started off, I was just on my own. My business partner also started on her own. These are just direct employees. And then we've got the communities that are part of our supply chain. So when you do something and if you just dare to take advantage of opportunity, we don't know what else you can unravel. We don't know that there'll be beneficiaries, like 190 people we've trained in beekeeping that become part of our supply chain now. But when you started, you just started on your own. So that's quite important. Look at where the opportunities are. Be humble, get over yourself, start something, and then ask around. Like ask people who've walked before you to say, oh, how do I tackle this? And surround yourself with people. So we've got a board. We lean on, we don't pay them. Hope no one will them listening today, but <laughs> we don't pay them. But they're willing to serve us. They don't give us money, but they're willing to give us their experience, their effort. And that's like, that's so valuable. And we lean on them quite a bit. Walk in humility. I think there's just not a lot of humility to go around. People just think they deserve the best things and they need to make money. Take time, please. Like, get over that nice car. Like, you'll probably buy it in your 50s if you can. Do stuff in your 20s. Put in the best you can, the effort. Put in so much effort in what you've identified as an opportunity and give it your best. Just last week, I was at a retail store. One guy at the store, he didn't want to learn some job. I think working the till. He's like, no, I'm not going to stay here for long. I'm off to something better. And um, he asked me when I was walking out the store, do I have a place where he could work? I said, oh, and I was probably very rude to him. And I said, I don't think I would even hire you if you have that attitude to say, I'm not here for long. So if people can just learn humility and get over themselves and take advantage of the opportunities, all oh, opportunities are there. They are there in abundance. The reason why people are saying, oh yeah, people from outside are taking opportunities is because People don't want to do certain work. They think though they don't deserve to do that job. And so when somebody from another country comes in and does that job, then people are all of a sudden they're taking our job. So um, we just need to, to just get over it and work. Why do you think you use the words honest work? Why do you think honest work has become almost such a swear word? It's like everyone's just looking for shortcuts. Two things are coming to my mind. One could be the influence of how media is, how digital media. This is what success looks like. And unfortunately... These people who are, who can say they're influencers and unfortunately are not doing justice to the future generation because they're influencing people to say, have this house like this. You have to have this car and you have to have this. And young people can be vulnerable and gullible <laughs> and think that this mm. is the way, if you have these things, you'll be happy. And some people are not really raised well and they raise, like, just get these things. Mm. And then you also have people who are supposed to be role models, politicians who are mm. supposed to be serving people who think they're businessmen. They need to live like they're businessmen, yet they're public servants. So you've got that dynamic where these are role models to say, this is what work looks like. Mm -hmm. You don't have to have this fancy car to, you know, to be happy. You can be happy. And these things, you could aspire to have them. And just share impatience. I think that people are just not willing to wait for the process. I don't have an electric kettle. My husband and I decided, of course, it was load shedding, decided we're going to have a whistling kettle. Mm -hmm. So we will wait for our water to have a cup of tea. <laughs> it will whistle, we'll wait, but you just put in a bit of water so that it's quick in the process. But sometimes people are just not willing to wait for the process. I mean, I make this stupid example of a kettle, but sometimes life is like that. There's no instant. I hear people talk about the philanthropist and they are in their 20s 
and they like they want to advise you. Yes, there's knowledge you can share, they're smart, but there are things that they are just much finer and they're much better when it comes from somebody who's actually put in the work and they're in their 60s and they say, I want to actually advise you on something. There's just something about process and time that just makes something beautiful. There's nothing that we're missing out on. The worst thing is when you are in your 70s, you wish, oh, I wish I, I did what I needed to do. I wish I didn't buy that car when I was in my 20s because I would have been smarter. Financially, I would have invested a bit more. So there are things that you just need to know that this is beautiful for its 20s and this is beautiful for my 30s and it's beautiful for my 40s. And when I'm in my 80s, I can gracefully say, I've lived, I did what I needed to do for the stage I was in. Um, looking at the future of local village Africa, where do you think you are going to be putting your attention and your focus and what is your big vision for the future? So really our goal and what we're striving for is to create good, healthy food products for the customer, create something that's good, that's healthy, less than an essay ingredients list, but also influence the customer to be more conscious about what they do eat, where the food comes from, so that it's not just about food for the sake of just consuming, but there's thoughtfulness, there's thoughtful eating. People understand what it actually means, their food purchases, what it actually means, whether for sustainability or communities where it's grown. So create products that will make that influence. But whilst doing that, making sure that we reduce the poverty rate, unemployment in rural communities, because we're not government, we're not going to take upon that burden, but we want to at least leave a, a, a sort of an impact, a footprint in the communities we come from here in Africa, where we say there's people who are not part of mainstream. They didn't have to move to Johannesburg or Lagos or Lilongwe to find work, but they could stay in their communities, but be able to participate in the mainstream economy, be there for their families, don't have to migrate into cities to find work, keep family as family, and people can work and find livelihoods in that. People always go up, think twice about becoming an entrepreneur. Yeah. What have been the funnest parts or what fun moments do you remember? So entrepreneurship, as hard as it is, but it has its wins. You go for pitch competitions, you win or you raise capital. And it's like, oh my word, we've got runway for six months. We can push and push and push until we can break even. So that's, that's exciting. But one of the most exciting things is to be able to conceptualize a product and then see it come to play. And then you see somebody buying it from the shelf. And then you get a reorder on that one product. It's so exciting. You want to pinch yourself and scream and you're like, oh my word, how did I do this? That's so exciting to see something from a seed. It's like if you farm or you put plants in a pot, you put it in there, you see it grow, you water it, you make sure that the soil is good. And then you actually find it in your salad. You're like, how did I get to the salad point? And days are not the same. There are days where it is just hard, where you just think, I can't do this anymore. I'm done. I'm closing it. And then after that, you just get a call. Somebody says, oh yeah, here's an opportunity. Like, you know, I love my business. I love this. You know, 30 minutes later. Mm -hmm. But the ability to create employment. I mean, like that's a big person thing to do. Like it's all grown up, but it's so exciting to be able to do that. So it is fun. I think for entrepreneurs, like sometimes the ego can be, you know, be bruised when people come in and they don't like the taste of the product. And they, especially at markets, markets will humble you. They can also teach you so much. Sell your product, somebody will give you a look that is off disgust. Like, what is this? Then you're so in doubt of yourself and you're thinking, what am I doing? And then somebody else will walk in and say, oh, this is the best thing I've had. Oh, this is such a great idea. I love this. I'm going to support your business. So it has its lows and its ups. 
Supermanda, if people want to buy your products, where can they get hold of your product? We've partnered with quite a few retailers. Our honey is at Food Lovers Market. We've got beautiful re- retailers like Jackson's Real Food Market, Farm Table in Linden. These are beautiful outlets where they can find our products. Do you have an online shop? We have an online shop. We also supply a platform called Faithful to Nature where they can find our products on their platform as well. For episode show notes and exclusive content, visit africanoptimist.co.za where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platforms or listen via our website. Thank you for spending time with us.